everyone. My name is Kristen Eddy, and you're listening to Dreamy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. Dreamy is the sister podcast to Sleepy and is produced by Otis Gray. The show is very, very simple. Each week, I read you a bedtime story. A lot of these stories are ones you might recognize, stories you loved as a child. Snow White, Cinderella, Peter Pan, and Sherlock Holmes, all stories from the public domain. Classics with snoozy writing that are perfect to fall asleep to. Since you'll be falling asleep to my voice, I thought I would tell you a little bit about who I am. I live in Burlington, Vermont. I'm a yoga teacher and a nanny. I love taking care of children. I especially love reading them bedtime stories. I was born and raised in Vermont, just like Otis, the host of the Sleepy Podcast, which is where you might have heard of Dreamy. Otis and I grew up together. We kept in touch, and when he heard that I liked to read to children, he thought, what a great idea for another podcast. So here we are, and now I am so happy to read to you. Dreamy is a brand new podcast, so if the show works for you, it would mean a lot if you left a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts where you can also leave requests for books you'd like to hear on the show. The music you're hearing is by RBKE, and the cover art for Dreamy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight, I will be reading The Birthmark, a wonderful short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. I loved reading this story, and I hope you'll love falling asleep to it. So now is the time for you to gently close your eyes, get really comfortable, take a deep breath in, and on your exhale, feel your body completely relax. While I read you a bedtime story. The Birthmark In the latter part of the last century, there lived a man of science, an eminent proficient in every branch of natural philosophy, who would not long before our story opens had made experience of a spiritual affinity more attractive than any chemical one. He had left his laboratory to the care of an assistant, cleared his fine countenance from the furnace smoke, washed the stain of acids from his fingers, and persuaded a beautiful woman to become his wife. In those days, when the comparatively recent discovery of electricity and other kindred mysteries of nature 
seemed to open paths into the region of miracle. It was not unusual for the love of science to rival the love of woman in its depth and absorbing energy. The higher intellect, the imagination, the spirit, and even the heart might all find their congenial element in pursuits which, as some of their ardent votaries believed, would ascend from one step of powerful intelligence to another, until the philosopher should lay his hand on the secret of creative force and perhaps make new worlds for himself. We know not whether Aylmer possessed this degree of faith in man's ultimate control over nature. He had devoted himself, however, too unreservedly to scientific studies, ever to be weaned from them by any second passion. His love for his young wife might prove the stronger of the two, but it could only be by intertwining itself with his love of science and uniting the strength of the latter to his own. Such a union accordingly took place and was attended with truly remarkable consequences and a deeply impressive moral. One day, very soon after their marriage, Aylmer sat gazing at his wife with a trouble in his countenance that grew stronger until he spoke. Georgiana, said he, has it never occurred to you that the mark upon your cheek might be removed? No, indeed, said she, smiling, but perceiving the seriousness of his manner, she blushed deeply. To tell you the truth, it has been so often called a charm that I was simple enough to imagine it might be so. Ah, upon another face perhaps it might, replied her husband, but never on yours. No, dearest Georgiana, you came so nearly perfect from the hand of nature that the slightest possible defect, which we hesitate, whether to term a defect or a beauty, shocks me as being the visible mark of earthly imperfection. Shocks you, my husband, cried Georgiana, deeply hurt, at first reddening with momentary anger, but then bursting into tears. Then why did you take me from my mother's side? You cannot love what shocks you. To explain this conversation, it must be mentioned that in the center of Georgiana's left cheek 
there was a singular mark. Deeply interwoven, as it were, with the texture and substance of her face. In the usual state of her complexion, a healthy, though delicate bloom, the mark wore a tint of deeper crimson, which imperfectly defined its shape amid the surrounding rosiness. When she blushed, it gradually became more indistinct and finally vanished amid the triumphant rush of blood that bathed the whole cheek with its brilliant glow. But if any shifting motion caused her to turn pale, there was the mark again, a crimson stain upon the snow in what Aylmer sometimes deemed an almost fearful distinctness. Its shape bore not little similarity to the human hand. Though of the smallest pygmy size, Georgiana's lovers were wont to say that some fairy at her birth hour had laid her tiny hand upon the infant's cheek and left this impress there in token of the magic endowments that were to give her such sway over all hearts. Many a desperate swain would have risked a life for the privilege of pressing his lips to the mysterious hand. It must not be concealed, however, that the impression wrought by this fairy sign manual varied exceedingly according to the difference of temperament in the beholders. Some vestigious persons, but they were exclusively of her own sex, affirmed that the bloody hand, as they chose to call it, quite destroyed the effect of Georgiana's beauty and rendered her countenance even hideous. But it would be as reasonable to say that one of those small blue stains which sometimes occur in the purest statuary marble would convert the eve of powers to a monster. Masculine observers if the birthmark did not heighten their admiration, contended themselves with wishing it away, that the world might possess one living specimen of ideal loveliness without the semblance of a flaw. After his marriage, for he thought little or nothing of the matter before, Aylmer discovered that this was the case with himself. Has she been less beautiful? If Envy's self could have found aught else to sneer at it, he might have felt his affection heightened by the prettiness of this mimic hand, now vaguely portrayed, now lost, now stealing forth again and glimmering 
to and fro with every pulse of emotion that throbbed within her heart. But, seeing her otherwise so perfect, he found this one defect grow more and more intolerable with every moment of their united lives. It was the fatal flaw of humanity, which nature, in one shape or another, stamps ineffably on all her productions, either to imply that they are temporary and finite, or that their perfection must be wrought by toil and pain. The crimson hand expressed the ineludable gripe in which mortality clutches the highest and purest of earthly mold, degrading them into kindred with the lowest and even with the very brutes like whom their visible frames return to dust. In this manner, selecting it as the symbol of his wife's liability to sin, sorrow, decay, and death. Aylmer's somber imagination was not long in rendering the birthmark a frightful object, causing him more trouble and horror than ever Georgiana's beauty, whether of soul or sense, had given him delight. At all the seasons, which should have been their happiest, he invariably, and without intending it, nay, in spite of a purpose to the contrary, reverted to this one disastrous topic, trifling as it first appeared, it so connected itself with innumerable trains of thought and modes of feeling that it became the central point of all. With the morning twilight, Elmer opened his eyes upon his wife's face and recognized the symbol of imperfection. And when they sat together at the evening hearth, his eyes wandered stealthily to her cheek and beheld, flickering with the blaze of the wood fire, the spectral hand that wrote mortality, where he would fain have worshipped. Georgiana soon learned to shudder at his gaze. It needed but a glance with the peculiar expression that his face often wore to change the roses of her cheek into a death-like paleness, amid which the crimson hand was brought strongly out, like a bas-relief of ruby on the whitest marble. Late one night, when the lights were growing dim, so as hardly to betray the stain on the poor wife's cheek, she herself, for the first time, voluntarily took up the subject. Do you remember, my dear Aylmer, said she, with a feeble attempt at a smile, have you any recollection of a dream last night about this odious hand? 
None, none whatever, replied Aylmer, starting. But then he added, in a dry, cold tone, affected for the sake of concealing the real depth of his emotion. I might well dream of it, for before I fell asleep, it had taken a pretty firm hold of my fancy. And you did dream of it, continued Georgiana hastily, for she dreaded lest a gush of tears should interrupt what she had to say. A terrible dream. I wonder that you can forget it. Is it possible to forget this one expression? It is in her heart now. We must have it out. Reflect, my husband. For by all means, I would have you recall that dream. The mind is in a sad state when sleep, the all-involving, cannot confine her specters within the dim region of her sway but suffers them to break forth, affrightening this actual life with secrets that perchance belong to a deeper one. Aylmer now remembered his dream. He had fancied himself with his servant, Aminadab, attempting an operation for the removal of the birthmark. But the deeper went the knife, the deeper sank the hand, until at length its tiny grasp appeared to have caught hold of Georgiana's heart. Once, however, her husband was inexorably resolved to cut or wrench it away. When the dream had shaped itself perfectly in his memory, Aylmer sat in his wife's presence with a guilty feeling. Truth often finds its way to the mind, close muffled in robes of sleep, and then speaks with uncompromising directness of matters in regard to which we practice an unconscious self-deception during our waking moments. Until now, he had not been aware of the tyrannizing influence acquired by one idea over his mind, and of the lengths which he might find in his heart to go for the sake of giving himself peace. Aylmer resumed Georgiana solemnly. I know not what may be the cost to both of us to rid me of this fatal birthmark. Perhaps its removal may cause cureless deformity, or it may be the stain goes as deep as life itself. Again, do we know that there is a possibility, on any terms, of unclasping the firm gripe of this little hand, which is laid upon me before I came into the world? Dearest Georgiana, I have spent much thought upon the subject, hastily interrupted Aylmer. I am convinced of the perfect practicability of its removal.
if there be the remotest possibility of it, continued Georgiana. Let the attempt be made, at whatever risk. Danger is nothing to me. For life, while this hateful mark makes me the object of your horror and disgust, life is a burden which I would fling down with joy. Either remove this dreadful hand or take my wretched life. You have deep science. All the world bears witness of it. You have achieved great wonders. Cannot you remove this little, little mark, which I cover with the tips of two small fingers? Is this beyond your power, for the sake of your own peace, and to have your poor wife from madness? Noblest, dearest, tenderest wife, cried Aylmer, rapturously. Doubt not my power. I have already given this matter the deepest thought. Thought which might almost have enlightened me to create a being less perfect than yourself. Georgiana, you have led me deeper than ever into the heart of science. I feel myself fully competent to render this dear cheek as faultless as its fellow. And then, most beloved, what will be my triumph when I shall have corrected what nature left imperfect in her fairest work? Even Pygmalion, when his sculptured woman assumed life, felt not greater ecstasy than mine will be. It is resolved then, said Georgiana, faintly smiling. And, Aylmer, spare me not, though you should find the birthmark take refuge in my heart at last. Her husband tenderly kissed her cheek, her right cheek, not that which bore the impress of the crimson hand. The next day, Aylmer apprised his wife of a plan that he had formed whereby he might have opportunity for the intense thought and constant watchfulness which the proposed operation would require. While Georgiana, likewise, would enjoy the perfect repose essential to its success, they were to seclude themselves in the extensive apartments occupied by Aylmer as a laboratory, and where, during his toilsome youth, he made discoveries in the elemental powers of nature that had roused the admiration of all the learned societies in Europe. Seated calmly in this laboratory, the pale philosopher had investigated the secrets of the highest cloud region and of the profoundest minds. He had satisfied himself in the causes that kindled and kept alive the fires of the volcano and had explained the mystery of fountains and how it is that they gush forth some so bright and pure 
and others with such rich medicinal virtues from the rich bosom of the earth. Here, too, at an earlier period, he had studied the wonders of the human frame and attempted to fathom the very process by which nature assimilates all her precious influences from earth and air and from the spiritual world to create and foster man, her masterpiece. The latter pursuit, however, Aylmer had long laid aside in unwilling recognition of the truth, against which all seekers sooner or later stumble, but our great creative mother, while she amuses us with apparently working in the broadest sunshine, is yet severely careful to keep her own secrets. And in spite of her pretended openness, shows us nothing but results. She permits us, indeed, to mar, but seldom to mend. And like a jealous patentee, on no account to make. Now, however, Aylmer resumed these half-forgotten investigations, not, of course, with such hopes or wishes as first suggested them, but because they involved much physiological truth and lay in the path of his proposed scheme for the treatment of Georgiana. As he led her over the threshold of the laboratory, Georgiana was cold and tremulous. Aylmer looked cheerfully into her face, with intent to reassure her, but was so startled with the intense glow of the birthmark upon the whiteness of her cheek that he could not restrain a strong, convulsive shudder. His wife fainted. Aminadab, Aminadab, shouted Aylmer, stamping violently on the floor. Forthwith, there issued from an inner apartment a man of low stature, but bulky frame, with shaggy hair hanging about his visage, which was grimmed with the vapors of the furnace. This personage had been Aylmer's underworker during his whole scientific career and was admirably fitted for that office by his great mechanical readiness and the skill with which, while incapable of comprehending a single principle, he executed all the details of his master's experiments. With his vast strength, his shaggy hair, his smoky aspect, and the indescribable earthliness that encrusted him. He seemed to represent man's physical nature. While Aylmer's slender figure and pale intellectual face were no less apt a type of the spiritual element. Throw open the door of the boudoir Aminadab, said Aylmer, 
and burn a pastel. Yes, master, answered Aminadab, looking intently at the lifeless form of Georgiana. And then he muttered to himself, If she were my wife, I'd never part with that birthmark. When Georgiana recovered consciousness, she found herself breathing an atmosphere of penetrating fragrance, the gentle potency of which had recalled her from her death-like faintness. The scene around her looked like enchantment. Aylmer had converted those smoky, dingy, somber rooms where he had spent his brightest years in recondent pursuits into a series of beautiful apartments not unfit to be the secluded abode of a lovely woman. The walls were hung with gorgeous curtains, which imparted the combination of grandeur and grace that no other species of adornment can achieve. And as they fell from the ceiling to the floor, their rich and ponderous folds concealing all angles and straight lines, appeared to shut in the scene from infinite space. For aught Georgiana knew, it might be a pavilion among the clouds. And Aylmer, excluding the sunshine, which would have interfered with his chemical processes, had supplied its place with perfumed lamps emitting flames of various hues, but all uniting in a soft empurpled radiance. He now knelt by his wife's side, watching her earnestly, but without alarm, for he was confident in his science and felt that he could draw a magic circle around her within which no evil might intrude. Where am I? Ah, I remember, said Georgiana faintly. And she placed her hand over her cheek to hide the terrible mark from her husband's eyes. Fear not, dearest, exclaimed he. Do not shrink from me. Believe me, Georgiana, I even rejoice in this single imperfection since it will be such a rapture to remove it. Oh, spare me, sadly replied his wife. Pray do not look at it again. I never can forget that convulsive shudder. In order to soothe Georgiana, and as it were, to release her mind from the burden of actual things, Aylmer now put in practice some of the light and playful secrets which science had taught him among its profounder lore. Airy figures, absolutely bodiless ideas, and forms of unsubstantial beauty came and danced before her, imprinting their momentary footsteps on beams of light though she had some indistinct idea 
of the method of these optical phenomena. Still, the illusion was almost perfect enough to warrant the belief that her husband possessed sway over the spiritual world. Then again, when she felt a wish to look forth from her seclusion immediately, as if her thoughts were answered, the procession of external existence flitted across a screen. The scenery and the figures of actual life were perfectly represented, but with that bewitching yet indescribable difference, which always makes a picture, an image, or a shadow so much more attractive than the original. When wearied of this, Aylmer bade her to cast her eyes upon a vessel containing a quantity of earth. She did so with little interest at first, but was soon startled to perceive the germ of a plant shooting upward from the soil. Then came the slender stalk. The leaves gradually unfolded themselves, and amid them was a perfect and lovely flower. It is magical, cried Georgiana. I dare not touch it. Nay, pluck it, answered Aylmer. Pluck it, and inhale its brief perfume while you may. The flower will wither in a few moments, and leave nothing save its brown seed vessels. But thence may be perpetuated a race as ephemeral as itself. But Georgiana had no sooner touched the flower than the whole plant suffered a blight, its leaves turning coal black, as if by the agency of fire. There was too powerful a stimulus, said Aylmer thoughtfully. To make up for this abortive experiment, he proposed to take her portrait by a scientific process of his own invention. It was to be affected by rays of light striking upon a polished plate of metal. Georgiana assented, but on looking at the result, was affrighted to find the features of the portrait blurred and indefinable, while the minute figure of a hand appeared where the cheek should have been. Aylmer snatched the metallic plate and threw it into a jar of corrosive acid. Soon, however, he forgot these mortifying failures. In the intervals of study and chemical experiment, he came to her flushed and exhausted, but seemed invigorated by her presence, and spoke in a glowing language of the resources of his art. He gave a history of the long dynasty of the alchemists, 
who spent so many ages in quest of the universal solvent by which the golden principle might be elicited from all things vile and base. Aylmer appeared to believe that, by the plainest scientific logic, it was altogether within the limits of possibility to discover this long-sought medium. But, he added, a philosopher who should go deep enough to acquire the power would attain too lofty a wisdom to stoop to the exercise of it. Not less singular were his opinions in regard to the elixir vitae. He more than imitated that it was at his option to concoct a liquid that should prolong life for years, perhaps interminably, but that it would produce a discord in nature which all the world, and chiefly the quaffer of the immortal nostrum, would find cause to cure. Aylmer, are you in earnest? asked Georgiana, looking at him with amazement and fear. It is terrible to possess such power, or even to dream of possessing it. Oh, do not tremble, my love, said her husband. I would not wrong either you or myself by working such inharmonious effects upon our lives. But I would have you consider how trifling, in comparison, is the skill requisite to remove this little hand. At the mention of the birthmark, Georgiana, as usual, shrank as if a red-hot iron had touched her cheek. Again, Aylmer applied himself to his labors. She could hear his voice in the distant furnace room, giving directions to Aminadab, whose harsh, uncouth, misshapen tones were audible in response, more like the grunt or growl of a brute than human speech. After hours of absence, Aylmer reappeared and proposed that she should now examine his cabinet of chemical products and natural treasures of the earth. Among the former, he showed her a small vial in which, he remarked, was contained a gentle yet most powerful fragrance capable of impregnating all the breezes that blow across the kingdom. They were of inestimable value, the contents of that little vial, and as he said so, he threw some of the perfume into the air and filled the room with piercing and invigorating delight. And what is this? asked Georgiana, pointing to a small crystal globe containing a gold-colored liquid. It is so beautiful to the eye that I could imagine it the elixir of life. In one sense it is, replied Aylmer, or rather, the elixir of immortality. It is the most precious poison that ever was concocted in this world. By its aid, 
I could apportion the lifetime of any mortal at whom you might point your finger. The strength of the dose would determine whether he were to linger out years or drop dead in the midst of a breath. No king on his guarded throne could keep his life if I, in my private station, should deem that the welfare of millions justified me depriving him of it. Why do you keep such a terrific drug? inquired Georgiana in horror. Do not mistrust me, dearest, said her husband, smiling. Its virtuous potency is yet greater than its harmful one. But see, here is a powerful cosmetic. With a few drops of this in a vase of water, freckles may be washed away as easily as the hands are cleansed. A stronger infusion would take the blood out of the cheek and leave the rosiest beauty a pale ghost. Is it with this lotion that you intend to bathe my cheek? asked Georgiana anxiously. Oh no, hastily replied her husband. This is merely superficial. Your case demands a remedy that shall go deeper. In his interviews with Georgiana, Aylmer generally made minute inquiries as to her sensations and whether the confinement of the rooms and the temperature of the atmosphere agreed with her. These questions had such a particular drift that Georgiana began to conjecture that she was already subjected to certain physical influences, either breathed in with the fragrant air or taken with her food. She fancied likewise, but it might be altogether fancy, that there was a stirring up of her system, a strange and definite sensation creeping through her veins, and tingling half painfully, half pleasurably at her heart. Still, whenever she dared to look into the mirror, there she beheld herself pale as a white rose and with the crimson birthmark stamped upon her cheek. Not even Aylmer now hated it so much as she. Thanks for listening to Dreamy Sweet Dreams. <laughs>